Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Flagship Podcast. I am Chip Brown of Horns 24-7, of course, uh, joined by my fearless co-host, the managing editor of Horns 24-7, the one and only Taylor Estes. Taylor, how you doing? I'm doing great, Chip. How about you? You know what? It's been a strange week, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's been weird, yeah. Yeah, with the uh, the news that Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and basically three other, well, two other families trying to get their daughters to a, a basketball game at the Mamba Center, uh, die in a helicopter crash along with the pilot, devastating. One family orphaned. Yeah. Oh, their two tragic. kids. I mean, unbelievable. So the, the mom and the dad and the daughter die in the helicopter crash and leave two young children behind and you're just your heart breaks for what on earth is going on here you know absolutely I mean that was you know when I saw the news come out on Sunday I saw like three tweets and people were saying not Kobe no please don't let this be true things like that and I was like what and then I saw TMZ story saying that Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash and I mean I wasn't really a Kobe fan growing up, you know, I grew up in Southern California, but I didn't grow up a huge Lakers fan, but I always respected him. And, you know, I did grow up watching him and it hit me hard. And then, then when it came out that his 13 year old daughter, Gianna was one of the passengers who did not survive. And then the seven others who were passed away. I mean, you know, one thing I think a lot of people may not be talking about much is that poor girls basketball team. I mean, these are 13 year old girls, young teenagers, that just lost three of their friends, their teammates, in addition to uh, Kobe Bryant, who was a coach of the team. I mean, it's just so tragic. It's it's a weird, you know, it's I think it's it's easy in today's society because there have been so many elite athletes that have come through history. I think it's really easy to overlook and not truly appreciate the greatness that some of these athletes have put out when they're still around. And this Kobe Bryant news to me has been one of those moments where I'm like, I don't know if I ever truly appreciated the greatness that was Kobe Bryant because he is, by all accounts, one of the best to ever play the sport, um, you know, and, and just such a, a role model to so many people. I mean, it's just been truly heartbreaking to witness. And, you know, that's, you know, it's outsiders who aren't close with the family or anything. I mean, it's just such a tragic situation. Yeah. And, you know, um, David Pierce ended up losing his his college roommate right. and one of his best friends um, in this in this crash, his um, his well, his college roommate John Altabelli, who is the baseball coach at Orange Coast College, a uh, an arena really successful, um, you know, baseball coach at that level, and had just won the National Coach of the Year award, um, and. It, it just this this is the family that orphaned two kids. I mean, right. um, just devastating that John Altabelli, his wife, Carrie and daughter, Alyssa, die in the crash and they leave behind uh, two uh, kids, JJ and Lexi. Mm -hmm. And I'm just devastated for those kids because, look, you lose a parent. It's a nightmare. You lose both parents your world is upside down. Right. It just, your whole life has just changed in an instant. And man, I hope there's a strong family unit around those kids ready to take them in and, and lift them up and everybody just sending some prayers, uh, in that direction, because this is, this is devastating stuff. Um, but you know, that that's why this week has been so strange because, the, the pall of this tragedy in Southern California and the magnitude of Kobe Bryant's stardom has us all trying to come to grips with it. And, and it's Super Bowl week, and you'd hardly know it because all the clips from Super Bowl media day were of the football players for the 49ers and the Chiefs answering questions about Kobe. Right. So it's just been a really surreal week but uh taylor we do have some texas longhorns news i mean i guess if there's one little wrinkle coming off of the kobe bryant 
uh, tragedy, it's that uh, Kendrick Perkins, who was a teammate of Kevin Durant's with the Oklahoma City Thunder, who criticized Kevin for leaving and going to the Golden State Warriors, and their friendship has been estranged since then. Uh, Kendrick Perkins said, in the wake of this, it's time to, you know, reach out to people you care about and let them know. And so he reached out to Kevin Durant and apologized and, and said, I hope we can go forward from here. And, you know, it's sad that it takes tragedy like this sometimes for people to to drop their guard and put down the walls and, and reach out. But we, you and I both know Sean Adams, a guy who – you know, we worked with who I did a radio show with who dropped dead at, you know, 46 years old. And, you know, he was always saying, reach out, tell people you care about them, tell them you love them because don't just think it because you never know. You're not promised. You're not promised another day. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so true. And speaking of Sean, you know, I still have the last text message that he ever sent me and it, it's exactly what he preached. You know, he talked about, you know, t- reaching out to people, just checking and seeing how they're doing all of that. And the last text message that he had sent me was saying that, you know, he is so proud of the work that I've done. And he was like, you know, we live, we work in the thankless industry and I just want to let you know that I want to acknowledge good work when I see it. And I think you do amazing work. And that's just something I've always held with me because that's like the literally the last text message exchange that I've ever had with Sean Adams after he passed away or before he passed away. And yeah, I mean, I think if there is a light in the situation, which it's so dark, I mean, just so tragic, uh, all accounts and, you know, Vanessa Bryant being a widow with three young girls. I mean, it's just so tragic, but it is, you know, the one thing that we know about this life is it's going to end, you know, (laughs) I mean, that's the one thing that we are guaranteed. And I do think that, it's sad that it does take situations like tragedy that makes people come together. But if there is a light at the end of the tunnel, it is that this situation has clearly, you know, touched so many people and has, I think had a lot of people thinking that way, including Kendrick Perkins, um, reaching out, you know, to Kevin Bryant or Kevin Durant and doing that in a public forum too. Um, you know, that's something I take, think takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there and admit your wrongs and admit your wrongdoings. And I thought that was really cool to see him do that um, for Kevin Durant. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope, I hope that's happening across the board in households around the world. I mean, if that's a legacy that Kobe can leave, then that's a powerful legacy. Absolutely. And, and it's, um, it's been a, just a stunning week. Uh, but there's news in the in the world of uh, Longhorns football. It's not good news either. Uh, Delhi Adeaway, uh, the starting middle linebacker for the Longhorns, is going to miss spring football with a foot injury that's going to require surgery, and his return is expected at some point during summer conditioning, summer workouts, and he should be good to go for fall camp. Now, in some instances, some years, this is, oh, okay, no no worries. He knows the defense. This is a good opportunity for young players behind him. But in this situation, with a new defensive coordinator and a new linebackers coach, the defensive coordinator, Chris Ash, linebackers coach, Coleman Hutzler, this was an opportunity for Delia Adeaway to learn the new defense make an impression on his new defensive coaches and he's going to miss that opportunity and and he's going to have to play catch up when he comes back in the summer. Yeah, absolutely. And and of all positions for this to happen at, I think that linebacker is probably the worst. You know, this is a position that was Honestly, I mean, you know, there was some solid play here and there, but it was, in my opinion, the reason why the defense struggles so much. There just was not solid options at linebacker, um, at least across the board. And there was very, very little depth. And I, you know, I I think Joseph Osai was playing out of out of um, position pretty much all year to try to make up for the lack of depth at linebacker. So the fact that now, uh, Delia Dayaway is not going to be in spring practice. I mean, it's just, you know, the one of the other options, a linebacker was Delia Dayaway all season with Juwan Mitchell and 
And then, you know, Joseph was kind of moving around a little bit there. But this is not a position where Texas really could afford to lose many bodies. Because if you go through the depth chart, Chip, I mean, what scholarship depth is there? There's, you know, Byron Bonds is listed as a linebacker. There's David Benda, you know, Marcus Tillman, who I think will have a solid future, but he's coming off of an injury. What's, what's his status going to be for spring practice? If he's, yeah, he's going probably going to gonna miss it. He's probably yeah. spring while continuing to recover from that knee, uh, season-ending knee injury last year. Yeah, and literally those are the backups right now. <laughs> That's tough. That's and real. As I reported in the eyes of Texas, and if you're new to the flagship podcast, welcome. Um, and if you're not a member at horns247.com, come on. Because you always want to know what's happening before it's happening, right? You want to be the smartest person in the at the water cooler or at your tailgate. Well, we can help you with that. And we break news all the time over at uh, Horns 24-7, especially in the eyes of Texas, our weekly insider notes package. And last week reported in there that Texas is going to be in the portal looking for grad transfers at linebacker on the offensive line and at receiver. And, and so that was even before the Delhi a day away injury. So they'll be looking maybe twice as hard in the portal for grad transfers uh, at linebacker. But Taylor, one story that is, you know, kind of a, a Rudy heartwarming story. And I don't know, I don't want to overcook it because I mean, he's a good football player and they, started him in the Alamo Bowl, Court Jaquist, the former walk-on who had five tackles in the first half of the Alamo Bowl. Now, that that game and game plan suited him. Obviously, Utah, not a prolific passing team, more of a running team, but he's going to get an opportunity to, to show what he can do. But again, you're talking about a former walk-on, and that's that's not something that Texas fans are accustomed to hearing, <laughs> yeah, especially right. at the middle linebacker <laughs> position, right? Yeah, exactly. Or get too excited to hear about, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah Chip. Yeah, that's a nice touchy-feely story. Give me, give me a ball player. I need a yes. five-star in there. <laughs> you know, that's nice. His parents have a nice scrapbook for him. Uh, I need a ball player. But hey, I'm just, just trying to, you know. You know, yeah. Give find find some a little love. No, for sure. You know, what's weird about that is, so my, br- this is totally random, but I, I didn't really know anything about court on the team until the Alamo Bowl, you know, I mean, and this is, I, I feel bad even saying this, but when there are a lot of walk-ons that are not playing, you know, aside from just special teams, it's not really somebody that grabs our attention. So I didn't even know that this Court was on the team. Well, my brother's name is Court, and it's spelled a little differently. But this is only the second person I've ever in my entire life heard the name Court. This Court itself, not you know whatever Courtney or whatever, just Court. And so when I saw that from the Alamo Bowl, I was like, wait, what? And I even texted my brother. I was like, so there's a player at Texas. His name's Court, and he's like, you're just finding this out. I was like, yeah, he's a walk on, so don't get too excited. Like, don't don't think that your name's going to be carried on too much. But. <laughs> It was just so like random. That's such a random name, and I don't know why I just thought of that story. But <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's a unique name, and and he's gonna get an opportunity. And look, it it you don't ever know. I mean, we've seen we've seen walk-ons. We've seen. I mean, I I was reading up on Raheem Mostert for the San Francisco 49ers, an undrafted free agent from Purdue, track speed, mostly return guy, and Kyle Shanahan the former Longhorn walk-on receiver, um, you know, continued to believe in this guy after he'd been cut by six different other teams. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, he fumbled it in a, in a game opportunity against the Cardinals last year, game seven. It was almost returned for a touchdown, and Kyle Shanahan told him, hey, I'm trying to fight for you. I need you to fight for me. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't, come on, believe in yourself. Let's go. You know, your speed makes you special. And let's go. And and he it took off it little by little. The the kid started believing in himself. He started making plays. And now he's what, the second best postseason rushing performance. Uh, after that two hundred and twenty yards he ran for 
last or not in the divisional playoff round. So, and who knows, he's got a chance to do something special in the Super Bowl for the 49ers. So you never know, but uh, we'll move on. We'll move on. Yeah, for sure. Court you know, Jacobus, once... <laughs> hey, we're here for you, man. We're giving you a lot of love here on the flagship podcast. Court, the Gasper family, for sure, is <laughs> supporting you. Uh, court number two here in our in our life. So <laughs> let's. Okay, so why did your parents name your brother Court? Do we know? No idea. And it's so so his name is spelled C O R T E. But so the other thing, my parents were kind of a little unique with the boy names to start off with because my oldest brother's name is Cade, and now that's a very common name. But when Cade was born, I mean Cade's you know in his mid forties, so I don't know how many you know mid forty year olds you know that are by the name of right. Cade. Right. And actually, he's, oh, geez, he's going to be 50 soon, actually, now that I think. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Well, we'll say mid 40s, a little over 45. But anyway, so. Keep moving. Sorry, Kate. <laughs> but yeah, you know, uh, so I don't know where they came up with Kate or Court, but Court, you know, Kate has kind of been a familiar name, Caden. There's a Caden Stearns, you know, Texas and all of that, but Kate Brewer. Um, but for his, you know, age group, that was not a common name. And then Court has always been the, you know, I always called him Snort growing up because Cade started calling him Snort. <laughs> so we had uh, Cade and Snort. And then they called me Tainer because I was a big dork. So <laughs> those were our little nicknames. But Nice. <laughs> yeah. nice. Well. Insight. And I, I'm pretty sure that I was named Taylor because I think my parents thought I was going to be a boy. And that my mom swears that's not the case. I, I'm convinced because she said it was between Taylor and Lacey and they did not know my gender before I was born. So to me, it was like, okay, so Taylor was the boy's name and then Lacey was the girl's name, but then they just went with Taylor for some reason. <laughs> oh man, that is funny. Yeah. Um, I haven't admitted it, but you know, one thing talking about some talent though, Chip, Texas does have talent coming into the 2020 class that won't be there for spring practice. They have um, Prince Dorba, you know, is a, a listed as an outside linebacker. So he will be joining the program in the summer after he graduates, as well as Jalen Ford, the recent addition that they signed on day two of signing day. But um, today is Tuesday, and the top 24-7 for 2020 was released. And it turns out that Bijan Robinson, very well-deserved, will finish his recruitment as a five-star um, overall. You know, 24-7 had him priorly um ranked as a four-star, but bumped him up to a five-star after his football season and also after seeing him at the Polynesian Bowl. So I thought that's something that Texas fans can get a little excited for because there hasn't been great positive news lately <laughs> with uh, the University of Texas, but Bijan Robinson will be a five-star um, when he comes onto campus in uh, May after he graduates. Well, that's exciting. And and that running back room is is super talented. I know there's a lot of excitement about what Jordan Whittington's going to be doing. And I mean, if, you know, if Keontae Ingram and Rashawn Johnson and Bijan Robinson can hold it down, then maybe Jordan Whittington moves back to receiver where he was initially uh, slotted to, to play. Right. And, and they get a boost at that position. I, I like the idea of Whittington doing some work at running back. Maybe they move him around, create a role for him because you just got to get the ball in that guy's hands. And I know everyone's like, what, what, what are you talking about? He was hurt all last year. Do we even know? Yes. I mean, everything I'm hearing is his recovery is, is on track now. And he's, he's past the, the lingering effects from the sports hernia surgery, the cleanup surgery, apparently was successful. So I'm expecting the the Jordan Whittington we saw in the 4A state championship game when he ran for 329 yards and scored six touchdowns for Cuero and was the offensive and defensive MVP. I'm expecting that guy. Oh, yeah. For a healthy version of him? I mean, my goodness. Like, that, it's still every time I hear that he was the offensive and defensive MVP in a state title game, it, I have to laugh because I just don't know how many times that's happened in the history of, you know, Texas high school football, but my goodness, talk about a freaking monster, right? I mean, yeah. there's no other way to describe him. That is a baller at all sense of the word. Yeah. So that's, that's exciting. That's something to look forward to, to see what role he settles into in spring football. And, and, um, 
And then, you know, the early enrollees are, are here and, you know, pay attention to the eyes of Texas this week. We're trying to get you a little early, way too early scouting report on the early enrollees. So, you know, there we go. Just a little tease right there. A little tease. (laughs) Sprinkle it out there a little bit. (laughs) That's right. Um, in baseball, uh, Taylor, real quick, David Pierce met with the media and it's that that's going to be an exciting group. I mean, they're kind of like clay right now because you lose some impact guys like David Hamilton and you didn't even have him last year because of the scooter accident, the Achilles injury. Um, but you know, DJ Petrinsky's back from injury, their catcher and, there's some familiar names coming back. Bryce Elder, Zach Zubia, and Eric Kennedy. And and you got some some speed out there. And But you've also got some really talented freshmen who are uh, coming in and, and are expected to play a key role. And I would just say, you know, keep, uh, keep an eye out for um, Trey Faltine, who is a 6'2". 195-pound shortstop who I think will probably end up being the guy because he's played on you know, Team USA. He's got a lot of experience. He's a guy who very highly recruited. Uh, he's number zero, so you can't miss him. And then Brendan Dixon, who's number one, who is going to be fighting for uh, the position or the starting job at second base. And... And these guys are really super talented players, and uh, they're at critical positions. Of course, Troy Tulowitzki and Houston Street are now part of this coaching staff. And David Pierce talked about what what a great sounding board Troy Tulowitzki has been, not only for the players, because he literally walked off a Major League Baseball team last year, retired, and is now coaching so these players saw him um, as an active MLB player, and now he's out there, you know, pass, trying to pass on his Gold Glove skills as an infielder. And 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 David Pierce said he's also a great sounding board for me. You know, all the stuff that I've been passing on as a coach, you know, to to kind of run it by Tulowitzki to make sure it all still applies and. And, uh, and so it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting to see how, how the impact of these new coaches and then some of these new freshmen are, are going to be. Uh, Texas opens with Rice, which is always a, a tough series. Uh, they'll play Cal State Fullerton in the non-conference. And they have, I think, single-game non-conference matchups with LSU and Arizona. So they, they always have a hard schedule. But, um, you know, obviously they had the injury bug last year. And then David Pierce basically said, we, I thought we had better leadership, stronger leadership on the team than, than we did. And when I pressed down to get that leadership, it wasn't there. And then we, we struggled. And, right. and that happens after you, go to a, after you go to Omaha or after you have a 10-win football season, Taylor. Yeah. The coach, the expectations get ramped up. The coach feels the pressure. The coach wants to pull it out of the players. And it can be tricky. If you press too hard, the players can, you know, they, they're getting a different signal from you. They can, they can buckle a little bit. And, you know, the key is always getting your players to feel loose and relaxed and, and ready for the moment. Like we saw the football team in the Alamo Bowl. And for David Pierce, like he experienced with a team that no one expected to go to Omaha that did. And then when the expectations to go to Omaha were on last year's team, they had some injuries, they pressed and and struggled and it yeah. didn't work out. So it's going to be uh, fun to watch this uh, baseball team start to evolve. Well, and the injury also to David Hamilton, that was so significant. I mean, that was one of the guys who was going to be a leader for that team. Yep. And for him to be out before the season for the entire season, 
I mean, that that's one of those type that would be like a quarterback getting injured. You know, I mean, he was literally one of the best infielders that they had on the team and plus one of the best bats. I mean, what doesn't he usually lead off the lineup? I mean, if your leadoff guy is gone before he's even stepped foot onto the field, I mean, that is such a big loss that I know that it doesn't seem as significant in baseball a lot of times if it's not, you know, the ace pitcher or something like that. But that ace infielder type of, you know, utility player who can do it all, that is a huge, huge loss. So, you know, David David Pierce had a huge uphill battle, I think more so than what a lot of people even acknowledged last year when David Hamilton went down. So it, it will be interesting. I'm curious to see how these additions um, in the coaching staff really impacted, especially with Houston Street. I mean, I think that he not only had such a successful career as a baseball player in professional ranks, but also at Texas. I mean, you know, he led Texas to how many Omaha appearances and plus winning one. I mean, it's uh, it's I think that this will be really interesting to have him kind of back around the program and see what his impact will be for the future. Yeah. Yeah. That 2002 um, College World Series, you know, he he was dominant. And um, that's when he formed his friendship with Cedric Benson. And um, and those guys, you know, were always Cedric Benson, a, a former um, pro baseball prospect with the Dodgers. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be I mean, there's some new energy. There's some new energy in the program. And 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 I, it sounds like David Pierce is energized and, and feels good about the makeup of this team. And, you know, you got to got to show it on the field, obviously. And they had look, they had freshman infielders last year. Right. I mean, you know, Bryce Reagan, uh, it didn't work out. He's gone from the program. Um, you know, Lance Ford battled and he's still, you know, he's going to be in the mix at second base. But um, it's going to be it's going to be fun to watch this team develop. And there are some talented young arms. And I'm just telling you, keep this name in the back of your in your back pocket. Pete Hansen. Lefty. That's right. Lefty. I like lefties. Lefties are the best. <laughs> My gosh. Seems like forever since Texas has had a, a starting left-handed pitcher. And we'll see if Pete Hansen as a, as a freshman can, can work his way into that starting rotation or just provide some, you know, quality middle relief or um, short relief because they need any lefty arms that can, that can produce. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my dad. I think he tried to force all of his, all of us, to be lefties, and <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. I mean, my brother Cade, he played professional. You know, he was a first round draft pick to the Detroit Tigers, and I remember the stories how he tried so hard to make Cade a lefty because <laughs> he noticed the strength in his arm when he was really little, and so he kept putting that ball in his left hand, and it didn't stick. But you know, <laughs> lefty, lefty pitchers can be absolutely dangerous. Just feel well, me. Where is El Dorado Hills, California? El Dorado. No. Uh, I think Oak Ridge. Uh, El Dorado Hill. Where is that? I that's believe where Pete Hansen's from. Okay. So. I, I think. Where, that's on, I, I think it's in Northern California, El Dorado Hills, I believe. Okay. I think so. I I could be wrong. Yeah, I think it's check. outside of Sacramento. And check real quick because yeah, so California. Other side. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's oh, definitely is. a ball player. Yeah. Okay. So it's Called. outside. Yep. There you go. <laughs> oh. Twenty-two tons. miles east of Sacramento. All right. Yeah. There's tons of talent in California when it comes to baseball. I mean, it's it's quite surprising. I think when you look at the number of players that come out of that state when um, playing. I mean, a lot of athletes, not just baseball, but baseball is a big one that I feel like you always see, you know, high school players getting drafted first round um, out of California schools. It's pretty interesting. So if you're a baseball player, head west if you can. (laughs) (laughs) And then head back to Texas. right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, My dad would say if you're not a first round or second round pick out of high school, you take your butt to college and you go try to get that degree and get that money as a junior. It's always his, his go-to move. But, um, you know, speaking of former 
professional players that did come out of Texas. Uh, let's let's uh, bring in a special guest, uh, former Texas All-American offensive lineman who won two Super Bowls with the Denver Broncos, Dan Neal, for his preview of the upcoming Super Bowl. Joined now on the flagship podcast by one of the Longhorn greats, All-American and two-time Super Bowl champion with the Denver Broncos. On the offensive line, uh, the best pulling guard John Makovic has ever seen. The one and only Dan Neal. Dan Neal. <laughs> Dan. How you doing? How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thanks for asking. I mean, I love talking to Dan Neal. If it's not <laughs> the Big 12 championship upset of Nebraska when you totally backed James Brown and his bold prediction that you all would beat Nebraska as three touchdown underdogs in that very first Big 12 title game to your Super Bowl rings, my man. I've been there for all of it. Can you believe that? I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm old. I know. I'm I old. know. You are. You're, know. you're one of the few people that are older than me, so I, I love hanging out with you. <laughs> I know. It's good. I make you feel young, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> well, so it's Super Bowl week, Dan. So, of course, we have to come to – I mean, it's there's only a couple – two-time Super Bowl winners. It's like you, Casey Hampton, Aaron Ross, and I can't think of, there might be one more, but I mean, it's a, it's pretty select company in Longhorn land, you know? Yeah. You know, honestly, you know, I think you're right. Cause when I, when I was on the team, when we won those two Super Bowls, I think at that time I was the only one. And then Casey and Aaron, I think you're right. And I can't think of anyone else right now on top of my head, but that number will grow. They're, Texas is putting out so many great players. I mean, it, it, it's hard for me to believe there won't be more guys doing that. But I, really what that number represents more than anything else uh, is how hard it is to win Super Bowls. I mean, these are really, really hard to come by. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dan Marino got there early. I mean, right out of the shoot and never made it back. Yep. And you can think that, oh, we'll be here again. But, you know, part of the reason I wanted to – to bring you on to the flagship podcast this week is because it's you've not only won a couple Super Bowls, but you won them with Mike Shanahan as your head coach. And Kyle Shanahan, former Longhorn, was running around uh, Bron- the Broncos facility during your playing career. And now here he is as the head coach in a Super Bowl and yeah. can, can make history himself as a father-son uh, you know, father-son duo to both win Super Bowls as a coach. So what goes through your mind when I say all that? <laughs> uh, Kyle, <laughs> when he was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's still when I look at him, it's just a smile. It's just hard for me to fathom how far he's come. Although I don't, never reason to doubt he wouldn't accomplish this. I mean, you know, Kyle always loved football. It was always interesting is, when he left Denver, he actually originally went to Duke. Uh, I don't know if he's on scholarship or walk-on, but he was at Duke and hated it. And so he was talking to his dad. Well, his dad talked to Gary Kubiak. Well, Gary Kubiak's best friend was Greg Davis. And Gary remembers an Aggie. And Gary kind of comes up to me and smiles. and is like, hey, I think Kyle might be transferring to Texas. And I kind of laugh. I was like, all right, you found the promised land. <laughs> and, and sure enough, you know, Kyle transfers to UT. Well, now all of a sudden, I, and I always liked Kyle, but now me and Kyle have a bunch in common. So when he'd come back, I'd sit down with him and, hey, what's it like? You know, and he would he'd tell me all about Austin and UT. And then all of a sudden, now we're both Longhorns. So, uh, you know, obviously, lo- love Kyle and, and seeing what he's doing right now is, is really, I'm amazed, but not. You know, I, I, I never doubted he could accomplish all this. Well, do you recognize some of what, the 49ers are running from your days under Mike Shanahan in Denver? Oh, yeah. Same stuff. <laughs> yeah? I mean, did you see him run the ball in the NFC oh, yeah. game? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I've well, seen all that before. <laughs> well, for for our listeners and for the, you know, for the layman, t- talk about why that zone yeah. running scheme that you operated with the Denver Broncos where it seemed like insert running back here for a thousand-yard rusher uh, why it's so effective once again now with the 49ers. 
Well, I wouldn't say once again. I think it's been effective all along. Uh, most good rushing teams incorporate a zone scheme. It used to be, you know, football's evolved. It used to be you did what's called the gap scheme, which you block a gap. You know, there's there's a A B C. You know, there's gap. Or, you know, really, actually, one, two, three, four gaps across the line, and you would have that area. And so you just you would run, and I'd go block the defensive end, or I'm blocking the defensive tackle. Well. Zone dogs where they would drop a defensive lineman in the coverage and blitz a safety and linebacker kind of mess with that whole scheme. And so then they said, well, let's go to a zone where we just block an area. We all run in one direction. If anybody comes in that area, that's who you block. And that's essentially what zone scheme is. That way you can pick up blitzers, twisters. It just enables you to handle more of the, the complications of what the defense are doing today. And when it works really, really well, what you're basically doing is you're creating large spaces for the back to run in because the defensive linemen have a gap. Well, I'm going to take that gap and I'm going to run way over one direction and that gap's going with me. So that means the D lineman has to go with me. And then if I can cut or seal off the backside and I run the play side, I start sort of create this huge avenue for the back to run and the back just needs to see it, hit it and go. And that's, I mean, that's what we're we're talking about here. And when you look at the 49ers offensive line, because you have to be athletic. You yeah. Have, you have to be able to move as an offensive lineman. You have to have good feet, which, of course, you had all of those things. And be smart, leverage, all that. But when you look at the 49ers offensive line, what stands out to you? What do you like? Uh, they're all that, you know. Unfortunately, I... You know, I haven't seen enough of them just because, you know, the, the Niners were on TV, but it, not all the time. And you don't get you, you're always stuck watching Dallas down here. But <laughs> uh, but, you know, watching some of the playoff games, they're lying. They're what you just said. They're they're athletic. I remember McGlinchey when he was at Notre Dame, if I'm saying the name right. Yep. When it was him and Quentin Nelson. I like both those guys. I really like Nelson. But I thought the tackle was damn good, too. And you're seeing him play really well. I mean, right tackle is a perfect spot for him. Uh, the ability to run with these guys and be athletic is exactly what you're saying. In addition, you know, the line's important, but if you were to ask me what really, really makes this go, it's the ability of your extra blockers, your tight end, your fullbacks, really receivers as well, those guys to block. Because that's essentially giving you seven offensive linemen, seven people, fullback, tight end, and your five linemen at the point on the line of scrimmage that will create those extra scenes. Cause if you have extra blockers and, and there's no question, the Niners Kittle is one of the best blocking tight ends in football, but that's a big reason that they are so good at a scheme that really every team in the NFL runs. So what you, you mentioned this to me and when Jimmy Garoppolo goes down, you know, he, he gets big money and then he gets injured and he misses you know, basically his, the entire season last year and Mike Shanahan ends up coming in and serving as his personal tutor for the season. And, you know, what do you, what do you make of that? And, and what you know of that situation? Well, you know, just, just to give, you know, most people like to pull the curtains back a little bit life in the NFL, just to give you an idea what exactly does it mean when you go on injured reserve, which Garoppolo was on last year? And that is at a certain point in time of the day, I think it's like 10 o'clock or whatever, you have to leave the facility. So you can stay for meetings, but you have to leave when they go on the field to practice. So Garoppolo couldn't even be on the practice field as they're practicing all last season, according to the rules of IR. So he's got nothing to do. And Kyle said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to have my dad come stay with me. You guys can go into a, a room somewhere, probably at my house, because you can't even be at the facility. So they probably went over to Gr- or, uh, Mike Kyle's house, and Mike sat in there in a room with a film and taught Garoppolo football every day for the entire season. Just, we're going to watch film. I'm going to teach you everything the defenses are doing, the way to attack the route trees we want to do, our system and our schemes against the defenses, so you just see it. So he got mental rep after mental rep of what they do, and then all of a sudden he's placed on the field. He's got the physical tools. Now that he has some of the mental acumen, he went out on the football field at the beginning of this year 
and played well. Now, a big key to all that is the ability of the run game to take the stress off the quarterback. And really, Garoppolo, he wasn't a game manager because he did step up and he made some completions. He really played well, but he had that all that whole offense clicking, and that enabled him to really do sit back and do what he wanted to do all season. And how would Mike be in that situation, having played Mike? Mike, Mike, one on one's the best. You know, I, 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 one time I was in Austin for I think the spring game again. This was when Kyle was playing for Texas, and I'm in my car. And I end up having to stop for these people walking like across Fourth Street. I look up; it's Mike and his wife Peggy, <laughs> and and they're, I'm laughing at them like, "Hey, we need to ride." I was like, "Well, get on in." So I drove them to whatever bar they were going with. Well, they were there hanging out with uh, 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 Phil Sims, Chris's dad. So I'm sitting at this bar with Mike and Sims, drinking with these guys. They're a blast. They're a lot of fun. <laughs> and so Mike hanging out in the film room with you it would be great. You know, the, most players that played for Mike had a positive experience. He has his stuff. You know, any boss you have, especially for eight years, you're going to have differences. But all in all, I, I really admire and like Mike a lot. So any Kyle Shanahan stories that you remember from when he was a kid around the, the Broncos <laughs> organization? You know, nothing when, you know, get to Kyle's credit, he worked his ass off. You know, he he would come up during the off season because he couldn't during the season one, he was playing football and, and we were too focused, but the off season he'd work out with us. So he'd go to the weight room and do the workouts with, he'd go on the field. He'd run with us, man. He was there every day, he worked his butt off all the time, working out, getting ready for the season. So I always admired him about that. And then Mike would always have this huge, uh, kind of kick off the season party. And he, and when I say he had a compound, I mean, it is one of the biggest houses I've ever seen. <laughs> it was uh, it was ridiculous. And so there's all kinds of places like to hide out. And I'd end up hiding out like with Kyle down in whatever room, uh, you know, drinking beer with him <laughs> and, uh, you know, talking about Austin or whatever, you know. So it was just always really like Kyle. <laughs> Fun guy. So who you, I mean, you got the Chiefs who you hate because they were in yeah. your division <laughs> as a Bronco. And you got the 49ers in this Super Bowl. So who who you who you picking? Well, I mean, one other aspect too. Remember the GM of the 49ers, an old teammate of mine. Yeah, John so, Lynch. Yeah, John Lynch. So I'm all in on the 49ers. Uh, just I, I can't I can't ever pick the Chiefs. I, I mean, I really literally want the Chiefs to lose every week. Uh, so it's it's hard. But now I do. Honestly, you know, I do admire and respect the Chief organization a great deal. The Hunt family is wonderful, and that's a great team, great town. Uh, and they have a very good football team. I like Andy Reid a lot as well. I know guys that play for him love Andy Reid. And I think you see this game reflected in the spread, which is what, 1-1-5 one, one, right now? Something right. Like that. You know, it's a pick em game. I mean, I – I think I could I could sit here and make an argument for both teams and convince you either one can win this game. I really don't have any idea what's going to happen. Yeah, no, it's going to be good. So, no, I, think so. I mean, we see you on Longhorn Network. You've you've been a, a great analyst. Um, of course, we always appreciate your contributions here at Horns twenty four seven. If you're new to Horns twenty four seven, welcome. If you're not, what's What's the holdup? Get on in and uh, enjoy a, an annual membership to Horns 24-7 so that you get to read great analysis during the football season from people like Dan Neal. But uh, you're also going through business school. You're getting your MBA from the University of Texas. So where are we in that process, Dan Neal? I'm still trying to figure out what the hell I was thinking, but uh, <laughs> I'm... <laughs> I'm in my last semester. It's a four semester program, including uh, summer school. And so I'm, I'm got three classes this one semester. And then I got one more small class in the summer and then I'll, I'll be done. So I'm, I'm close. I mean, if, if I, if I graduate, you know, you have to have a three O to graduate. I'm like the guy just riding that razor thin line between the <laughs> two nine nine and three. <laughs> Come on, man. I know you got this. This is great. So, you're uh, you're coming up on your last semester. I'm in it right you're now. You're in it. Yeah. yeah. Can you yeah, say what class? You called 
when you call it, I'm reading contract law for my business law class. Oh, see? <laughs> so how many classes do you have right now? I, I'm in three right now. Um, and these, these are a little more, more uh, the, the, this semester is more my speed. It's not as you know quantitative as some of the other stuff, a little more qualitative, which is more my speed. I'm not a math guy, so okay. I've been having fun. Yeah. All right. Business law. What else we got? Corporate turnaround, which has a very enjoyable professor, which uh, he's entertaining. And then we are doing negotiations, well, which good. I wish I would have done before my contract negotiations, but I, I did not. So, oh, man, <laughs> yeah. if you only knew now or only knew then what you know now. But Dan, yeah, I've done the same thing. I'd have hired somebody else to do it. But well, <laughs> at least yeah. I would have known what they're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So, what, um, you know, as far as the Longhorns, and I know we're all guessing at this point, but, yeah. you know, two new coordinators and still waiting on a defensive line coach, but it, it will be seven new assistant coaches on Herman's staff, seven of 10, and in, including the coordinators. Chris Ash, the defensive coordinator, Mike Yersich, the offensive coordinator. What uh, what are you going to be looking for in the spring? What what's going to you know be at the top of your list of things to look for? I, I think on the on the offensive side of the ball is um, I, I want to see you know Sam's progression. I, I felt like he he was making some strides and then sort of hit a lull during the season. And, uh, you know, look, there's all kinds of theories as to why, but it, the, the numbers are there. I want to see kind of where his comfort level is at and what he's doing. Because, honestly, whoever is running this offense needs to look at Sam and say, we got to make this guy great. You know, it, it's similar to what they did with Joe Burrow. Not to compare the two, but that same idea is, let's take a great talent and let's make him great. I want to see Sam step up because I know – Sam wants to. I know internally he wants to. He's going to put the work in. He just needs the opportunity. And on the defensive side of the ball, I want to see a little bit, you know, I think what everyone felt like we saw in the uh, Alma Bowl, and that's playing that reckless abandon, flying around confident, comfortable what they're doing. The day away was awesome. You know, a lot of these guys seem to kind of step up in that game. And I think we want to see that carry over to the spring. Uh, you know, it was obvious that the direction the team was going in last year was not the right direction to Tom Herman's credit is he's gone and cleaned house and gotten a whole new staff. Uh, I think I'm like everybody else. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm optimistic. I hope this is the right thing. And I hope these are the right coaches, but really none of us are going to know until we see a product on the field. And honestly, it's hard to see much in spring because they're running basic stuff. You really won't have a good feeling until week one, two. Obviously, LSU, what this team can do on, on offense and defense. But we know they have enough talent to be a very good football team. Yeah, and LSU's had a bunch of turnover as well. Joe Brady, their passing game coordinator, uh, goes to the Carolina Panthers. And Dave Aranda, the defensive coordinator at LSU, is now the head coach at Baylor with Larry Fedora. Uh, Tom Herman's analyst here last year, now as the offensive coordinator for Dave Aranda. So, you know, he's got all the, he's got all Texas's secrets. You know what I'm saying? But I saw that was interesting. Of course, you saw who he hired as his offensive line coach as well. Yeah, Joe Wickline. Yeah, who's done very well everywhere but Texas. Right. <laughs> I, oh. I explained it to me. Steve Patterson. So I, I do think he's a very good coach. So I thought that was interesting as well. Baylor hiring the, the, the the uh, spy from UT. So yeah, we'll yeah. How about that? Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and Ed Ordron bring, bringing in Bo Pelini as uh, defensive coordinator to replace Dave Aranda. How about that action? That's interesting. All right, Bo Pelini. I didn't know he was still around. So. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, Dan. It's a revolving chair. You turn around, and all of a sudden, there's a coach that pops up. Yeah, hey, I remember you. <laughs> they just go from school to school to school to school to school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Dan, always appreciate it, man. Appreciate the conversation. So, can we pin you down? You're cheering for the 49ers. You think they think they pull it off? Uh, you know what? It, it, all honestly, I'm absolutely cheering for the 49ers. I do think they win the game. I think the key will be Mahomes. The 49ers and Garoppolo can't compete with Mahomes. 
the 49ers have to find a way to slow that guy down. If they do, they win the game. If Mahomes does his day that he's capable of having, it'll be tough. But I think this, the Niners do it. Yeah, that, that Niners front four might actually be able to contain him. I think so, man. They're really good up front. Man. Bosa uh, got so much fun to watch. Man. Well, Dan, Dan Neal, I mean, great stuff. Appreciate the time and uh, have a great Super Bowl week, my friend. Hey, you do the same, Chip, and you as always, anytime, man. Glad to do it. All right. I'm going to take you up on that. Don't you forget <laughs> it. Uh, there he is, Dan Neal. The flagship podcast rolls on. Thanks so much to Dan Neal for joining us and always great stuff to get his insight on all things football, especially Texas football um, with the the legacy he left on the 40 acres. Now, Chip, let's uh, turn our focus over to another sport that's not doing so hot right now. Texas basketball, you know, the Longhorns are coming off of a close loss to LSU and, you know, down in the first half um, comes back in the second half to lose by two points. But, it just seems kind of like the same story when it comes to this program. Is there anything that you saw in that game that you took away as a positive? Well, the thing that is starting to emerge and has been is Jericho Sims. I mean, and this is starting to remind me a bit of last year with Jackson Hayes. And you you saw Jericho Sims. Uh, he's He went 7 of 9 in that game. 14 points, and, you know, he's doing some work on the boards. I mean, he's averaging um, eight rebounds, 7.7 rebounds. But he's he's shown up in, in games, like at Baylor, you know, 15 rebounds, 13 points. Uh, the game against Oklahoma, 15 rebounds, including, you know, five offensive rebounds. He's hitting the glass on the offensive end and the defensive end. And and then against Kansas, nine of 14, uh, 20 points. And that this is the guy you have to be playing through. And this was the case last year with Jackson Hayes. And and you could say, well, he doesn't have a he doesn't have a, a shot. You know, he's only good around the rim. OK, well, then run pick an alley oop. I mean, just dump the ball into the guy, run screen and roll. Um and get the ball to the guy in, in the painted area. I mean, find ways to get him the ball in the painted area. And that's, that's frustrating. I mean, last year, Jackson Hayes, who became a lottery pick is now playing with, you know, Zion Williamson with the New Orleans Pelicans, both lottery picks. And he shot 76% from the field. It's ridiculous. It led the big, let the big 12. It was among the best in the nation and they wouldn't run any plays for the guy. Jericho Sims is shooting 66.4% from the floor and he's, he's playing at a high level. He's playing with intensity and you just want to see them run some, some action for him. I mean, against Kansas, they cut, they tie the game. With four minutes left, four minutes and 50 seconds left, how many shots did Jericho Sims get? None. You know, they're jacking up threes and missing them. And and then down the stretch against LSU, Sims is the only one who's, well, he and Matt Coleman were the only ones who, you know, made buckets. Right. The rest were missed three-point attempts. What is it about Shaka Smart teams in the, in a, one possession game in the final four minutes where players feel like they need to start jacking up threes. This is when you, you take their will by pounding it inside and getting easy baskets and, and then go play defense and force them to take the three point shots and the hard shots. It just, why are you always the one that, that is, you know, just falling back to shooting a three and of course missing them. So frustrating and look, I don't know if anything can save Shaka Smart at this point. He's coaching for his job every game. Mm-hmm. When you have that 38-point debacle at West Virginia, the worst uh, Big 12 loss in Texas basketball history, and you're down 43 and you, you look like you've quit, the fans are ready to – they're done. 
So now every game, the fans are ready to fire you. Yeah. You have to do everything you can to give them a reason to stop thinking like that for one game or two games or turn it around and get on a roll and get hot and get into the NCAA tournament and do something in the NCAA tournament. You got veteran guards. I mean, these players should be so much better than they are. It's so frustrating that, that Shaka's players don't develop. You know, Taylor, I'm sorry. I'm just going on and on here and I could talk all day about sort of the ills of Shaka smart, but and, and he, again, he's a nice guy. It's not personal. It's business. It's a right. results-oriented business. They're building a $388 million arena. So I don't want to get into, hey, a nice guy deserves to – no. It's a $388 million arena. But I was looking back at his VCU team that went to the Final Four in 2011. And the three best players on that team, Jamie Skeen, Bradford Burgess, and Joey Rodriguez were all recruited – by the previous coach, uh, Anthony Grant, and they were the those were the three players who carried VCU through the postseason, and they were the epitome of havoc. You know, Jamie Skeen was six nine, just up and down the floor, athletic, tireless. Um, Bradford Burgess six six, and Joey Rodriguez, the ultimate point guard. I mean, had. 10 assists and 11 assists in the NCAA tournament in separate games, one in a one point win over Florida state, uh, another against Kansas to get into the final four. I mean, I don't see anything like that. No. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's sad. It's, it's frustrating. What happened to Shaka smart? I mean, they're going to do a 30 for 30 on this one day. What happened to Shaka smart? Yeah. You know, the brilliant young coach. Everybody wanted, and he turned down job after job, and then he he takes the Texas job, and it proves to be a, a disaster. But sorry, that was a long-winded uh, question. Let me ask you something because you you brought up Kobe at the beginning, or we were talking about Kobe at the beginning of the podcast, and and you grew up in Southern California and in Orange County where where Kobe lived, mm-hmm. um, but you you know he. Watching Kobe as a, and your dad played professional baseball. He was on the Miracle Mets, won the World Series in '69. Your dad, I'm sure, is a connoisseur of great athletic talent. So, so are you now as a, a sports reporter. What was it like growing up in Southern California with Kobe uh, in the Lakers? You know, it was um, so back then. You know, you it, the cable that we had did not have so many different games. So I love watching basketball. I, I, you know, really started following basketball with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman when they were all at the Bulls. So I was really into basketball. Well, a lot of the games that I was able to watch because of the cable was the Lakers. So I didn't grow up a Lakers fan. All of my friends were, a lot of them were bandwagon fans, especially after Kobe joined the organization and then, you know, they go in 3P from 92 to 2002, but with Phil Jackson as head coach who came from the Bulls. But, you know, it was it, Kobe Bryant to me was always that guy um, who I loved to watch and I loved to hate because he was just, you know, I wasn't a Lakers fan. I was not, I didn't grow up, you know, as a Lakers fan, I was uh, definitely, I guess, a bandwagon fan liking the Chicago Bulls because I just love Michael Jordan. I loved his game. But Kobe Bryant, in my opinion, you know, was one of those players that his confidence on the court, just the way he held himself, you couldn't help but watch him. But at the same time, you wanted to be like, gosh, I don't want you to win. You know, it was kind of as as a non-Lakers fan, I couldn't stop watching him. But I also didn't want to see him and the Lakers win. But, you know, it's just thinking back on how many Lakers games I watched growing up and just thinking of the magnitude that he made on the sport. You know, I've always been um, of the mind that Michael Jordan is the best player to ever play the game. I still will say that, but there's absolutely no doubt that Kobe Bryant deserves to be in that discussion, especially for what he did with the Lakers. I mean, my goodness, he played with the organization for 20 years. That doesn't happen very often. And I mean, look at how many different, you know, superstars are out there that, 
decide to leave an organization to go, you know, join the, the mega team, like you're seeing kind of Golden State Warriors. And when, you know, when LeBron went to Miami um, in the heat, you know, back in the day, I mean, you just kind of, you don't see that type of player that stays with the organization and can be such a dominant force for so many years. And, you know, just looking back, I, I feel honored, honestly, that I was able to watch so much of Kobe Bryant's career, even though I wasn't rooting for him when he was on the court. I just can't help but respect what he did for the game of basketball and how much he's really impacted so many players since he left. I mean, his what you're seeing right now um, after the tragic loss of his, his life and his you know precious little daughter, 13-year-old daughter Gianna, I mean, it just shows the world stopped when Kobe Bryant passed away. And still, you know, we're this we're recording on Tuesday. So it's been, you know, well over 48 hours since the news broke and you're still constantly hearing every I mean my Twitter feed is just constantly all Kobe Bryant. Now I follow a lot of sports people, so of course that's probably why, but it just shows the magnitude that he had on the game and I feel personally, Chip, I feel fortunate that I was able to watch so much of him growing up because of where I live, because living and growing up in Southern California, that's the basketball games that was on TV all the time. And, you know, while I, I may not have been rooting for him, I just can't help but say that I'm, I'm honored and I feel like I was able to watch, you know, a, a legend in the sport for so many years. And I didn't take it, you know, I took it for granted probably while it was going down. But looking back, it's just something that, you know, if you if you live in Southern California, Kobe Bryant's everywhere. And I think it's always going to be that way, too. Yeah. I mean, he was the face of L.A. sports for 20 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not just. I mean, there was no NFL team Mm-mm. for yep. most of that. And and the Dodgers were kind of off in the desert um, until recently. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's. And I, I have to say this. I'm I'm with you. I was a Kobe hater. I'm a Pistons guy. So I don't want to hear about the Lakers. I mean, to this day, one of the the best NBA finals ever, in my opinion, was 2004 when the ragtag Pistons took down the behemoth Lakers as Shaq and Kobe basically split up. Yeah. I mean, that was it. That the end of the run right there. And and then Shaq went off to Miami and won. Uh, and Kobe had to figure it out, and ultimately he he won a couple more. But it so long story short, I'm going out to L.A. to see my uncle, who's a 40 year character actor in Hollywood, and and I said to my son, I said I think Kobe's going to retire soon. We we should go to the Lakers, and I I went online and I got us seats 12 rows behind the Lakers bench. For under face value. Now, these are like $274 tickets. We got them for like $175 each. And I said, you know, I'm going to spend some money on these tickets so you can see Kobe up close. We're going to sit behind the bench. And 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 so we did. And, you know, they played the Raptors, and it was awful basketball. I mean, no one was going to these games because the Lakers were so bad. They were like in last place. Kobe's making 30 million. I was kind of laughing at the bus family for just being like, why, what are you doing paying Kobe 30 million? And what, what's Kobe doing taking that money, you know, spread the money around, get some players around you. But anyway, so we go and, and then 10 days later he announces he's retiring in those same tickets that we got for 175 bucks. We're going for a thousand for the rest of the home games. Jeez. Like I, I kept looking cause I, I wanted to see, and those tickets, once he announced his retirement, same crappy team, same crappy, everything, Yeah. the $175 ticket that we got went to a thousand. That's all Kobe. That's yeah. the Kobe effect. Mm-hmm. People were willing to go spend a ton of money to go see him and say they saw him the year that he retired and that's that's on you know that's the power of Kobe and and that really hit home with me this week because I remember thinking I was so smart and then but it it just the significance of it is really magnified and I agree with you since he left the game because look I I can tell you all the faults of Kobe right mm-hmm. down to him snitching on Shaq and allegedly Paul Gasol to to Kobe's wife and then 
his wife told their wives, hey, you know, they're acting up on the road to the point where they kind of ruined the the Lakers run with Kobe Pogasol and, and uh, Lamar Odom. But nonetheless, he became a really uh, impressive, magnanimous and unselfish or uh Yes, unselfish adult. In the yeah. twilight of his career, you're right. He was reaching out to other players and offering to have them come train with him and and you know, picking out the guys he thought had a big time future and saying, Hey, let me let me tell you a few things. Let me show you a few things. And then the other story I love, and we're going way way long today, but um was the two thousand eight Olympic team, the Redeem team, the team lost in 04 and and then in 08 it was Kobe, LeBron, D Wade and and Carlos Boozer told the story, Carmelo and Boozer said that that Kobe would get up and before breakfast he would go get some weights in and get some shots up. And then he'd go eat breakfast and then they'd go do their practice. And then, and then if they had a game, you know, come back, eat, and then Kobe would go back and, you know, do a little bit more conditioning and get more shots up. And Boozer said that after everyone got wind of this, that became the schedule for the whole team. Yeah. So the whole team was then going down to the weight room, getting some work in and getting shots up, then going to breakfast, then going to practice, then going back. And, and, and LeBron said, that's when I learned how, how much work it really took. Yeah. And, and that's, that's cool. And that's a credit to, to Kobe. Cause when your best players are your hardest workers, that's when the magic happens. Absolutely. No doubt about it. It's- well, listen, thanks for listening to the flagship podcast. And again, if you're not a member at Horns 24-7, uh, get over there. We've got, I mean, it's 30% off annual membership. Get the annual membership because that gets you VIP access to all the team sites in the 24-7 Sports Network, which is far and away the best uh, team site network on the planet. It's not even close. I mean, Taylor told you about all the rankings that just came out. Get in there just enjoy it and uh and taylor you're the best thanks for everything you do hey thanks 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 to dan neal for for joining us and hey let's do it again next week sounds good all right thanks for listening to the flagship podcast